Hello, this is Terence McNally. We don't yet know how it all shakes out, but mass demonstrations in Iran and China may have put an end to the morality police and zero COVID. Here's my 2019 conversation with Erica Chenoweth, co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works. Working with Maria Stefan, Chenoweth asked whether violent or nonviolent resistance was more effective. Analyzing 323 mass actions, they found nonviolent civil resistance far more successful. In fact, no campaign failed once it achieved 3.5% participation. You can learn more at ericachenoweth.com. Hello, I'm Terence McNally, and welcome to another newly recorded episode of Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. I'm going to be speaking today with Erica Chenoweth. She's co-host of the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works. And you can learn more at ericachenoweth.com. Erica, E-R-I-C-A, Chenoweth, C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H, one word, ericachenoweth.com. Um, after a three-year hiatus uh, since Trump's Electoral College victory, I've been doing a new interview every other week. Paul Hawken on climate change, Naomi Klein on No Is Not Enough, Arlie Hochschild on her book Strangers in Their Own Land and the Stories That Divide Us, Robert Wright on Why He's a Buddhist. The show airs as specials on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. And podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Podomatic.com, Google Play, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net. Now, a quick plug for participation. These are uh, organizations that it's worth um, uh, following, getting in touch with, getting involved with if you are uh, working um, for the healthy and just society that we need, indivisible.us, indivisible.us, uh, born right after uh, Trump's election, uh, has uh, local chapters all over the country, sends out a weekly thing telling you what you can do, whether it has to do with local uh, actions in your area or national actions and so on. Two organizations that were primarily digital, still are, but they work closely now with grassroots organizations on a national basis, moveon.org, that's moveon, one word, dot O-R-G, and in California, Courage Campaign, one word, couragecampaign.org. Two that are very specific, one is fivecalls.org, that's the number five in the word calls, fivecalls.org, which will tell you what are the most timely and relevant calls you might make to your representatives about bills or actions that are, that are uh, in the offing. And then Town Hall Project, one word, townhallproject.com, which tells you when your representatives are going to be meeting with constituents at home rather than being in D.C., and then just because I know it is uh, very related to uh, this interview, uh, the, the, uh, what I find the most potent global activist organization on the issue of climate change is 350. That's the number, 350.org. And uh, if that's your issue, you'll want to be in touch with them. Now to today's guest. Let me set this up by saying that in the fall of 2000, I interviewed the creators of a PBS miniseries and a book both titled A Force More Powerful, A Century of Nonviolent Conflict. In that millennial year, we saw a lot of retrospectives on the 20th century featuring images of world wars, genocide, nuclear weapons, human destructiveness on a scale unprecedented in history. But A Force More Powerful highlighted an entirely different theme. 
that before, during, and after the Great Wars, there was a series of successful nonviolent conflicts about racial and social justice and self-determination. And they predicted that in a global information culture, such methods would become even more powerful. Now, their work was meaningful and inspirational, but it was also anecdotal. Now, nearly 20 years later, I'm joined today by Erica Chenoweth, who, working with Maria Stefan, set out to rigorously study the question of whether violent or nonviolent resistance was more likely to succeed. Over two years, they collected data on all violent and nonviolent campaigns from 1900 to 2006 that resulted in the overthrow of a government or in territorial liberation. They created a data set of 323 mass actions, and they analyzed nearly 160 variables. Their finding, in the aggregate, nonviolent civil resistance was far more effective in producing change. Now, I look at an article in the New York Times this past June 25th by Amanda Taub and, and Max Fisher, and it opens with this line, 2019 might be the year of the protest. And they cite examples in Prague, Hong Kong. Kazakhstan and the UK. We can now add Puerto Rico. In April, the president of Algeria left office after protests, and the president of Sudan did the same a few years, a few days later. So what's going on? Why are nonviolent protests working? And what might that mean for us here in the U.S.? Erica Chenoweth is professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and a Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Foreign Policy Magazine ranked her among the top 100 global thinkers of 2013. She blogs at Rational Insurgent and co-hosts the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance. Along with Jeremy Pressman, she's founding co-director of the Crowd Counting Consortium that collects data on the size of political crowds protesting within the U.S. since the first Women's March of 2017. She's co-author of Civil Action and the Dynamics of Violence, the Oxford Handbook of Terrorism, and why civil resistance works, the strategic logic of nonviolent conflict. Welcome, Eric Chenoweth, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Tuesday, July 23rd. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And, and I know when I listened to uh, you being interviewed, you cited uh, one of those folks I referred to, uh, one of the authors of A Force More Powerful, Peter Ackerman, as, as someone that... Uh, that, that had informed your thinking. So that's, that's nice that that goes full circle. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about on the show. So can you talk briefly about your path to the work that you find yourself doing today? And so that they get a sense for you, you feel free to go way back, mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I think actually the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Eastern European revolutions in 1989 uh, were probably some of the most formative events in my life um, in my own political awakening and consciousness. I was a kid at the time. I was born in 1980, so I was just starting to watch the news and notice newspaper front uh, pages and headlines and such. And then um, I can recall noticing that uh, there were wars breaking out in uh, southeastern Europe, the Balkans, and in many of the former Soviet republics. And um, a lot of the conflicts that caught my attention were those in which people were talking about children who had been um, the victims of violence. There was a woman named, or a girl named Vlata Filipovic who'd written a diary during the surge, uh, siege of Sarajevo. 
And uh, my mother had bought me the book at a bookstore, and I'd read it, and Zlata and I were exactly the same age. And so even as a, a kid uh, growing up, I was really um, intrigued by and concerned by political violence and the ways that it affected people around the world, and so wanted to have some kind of career in which um, I could be involved with responses to violence. Um, when I went to college, I figured the way that I could contribute was trying to um, potentially pursue a career in the military. Um, and so I sort of tried out uh, for Army ROTC. I took a couple of military science classes and uh, went to some of the trainings and found that it wasn't for me um, and that I actually took to more of the scientific side of things. Um, but I was very interested in when and why political violence happens. And when I went to graduate school, I committed to studying terrorism, why terrorism happens in democratic countries so much, and I was really uh, interested in trying to use statistical tools to um, explain and describe patterns of terrorism and, and its causes. Uh, and so by the time I was finishing my Ph.D., I was really fully entrenched in kind of security studies um, and uh, the academic study of violence and, and how to contain it, prevent it, or reduce it. Um, but it didn't really occur to me that um, that nonviolent action was a part of that story at all. Um, the fields were very distinct from one another. Um, most people associated with um, nonviolence or nonviolent action were considered more normative theorists from how I could uh, kind of access that information. And so it, it didn't really it didn't really come through in the work that I was doing until I, was kind of accidentally invited to a workshop um, that was put on by the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, which Peter Ackerman and his family had um, had financed. Uh, and there I met Peter and Jack Duvall and Maria Stephan, who was working there at the time. Um, and, you know, they were talking about nonviolent action, their book, A Force More Powerful, and other examples from around the world where um, ordinary people had used um, mass collective nonviolent action to achieve really radical transformations in their societies. And I found myself really curious but skeptical about a few key questions. Uh, the first was really um, whether there had actually been some kind of systematic comparison um, in the uh, reasons why people use both nonviolent and violent resistance, and then whether um, they kind of occur in different types of countries or different types of regions of the world um, against different types of, of states. Uh, so, for example, one of my main reservations was that nonviolent resistance couldn't work if the opponent was very powerful, um, brutal, um, if they had closed off space for civil society, if they had, you know, really sophisticated methods of repression that they were willing to use. Um, I also didn't think that nonviolent resistance could achieve radical transformations. I thought it could only achieve incremental or reformist changes when it happened. Um, and so these were some of the things that I kept kind of pondering and asking people about. And in the end of the, the, the workshop, uh, Maria and I kind of sat down and, and came to some kind of a research design that would address all of my skepticism. So, you know, basically how would we design a study that addressed um, the key hypotheses I was sort of spelling out about 
the fact that nonviolent resistance um, might be less effective against authoritarians or for real radical goals. So that's really what motivated the research. And then in the end, as you mentioned, the research really um, supports people who are more guardedly optimistic about the promise of nonviolent action as a category or method of conflict. Um, there are all kinds of different questions and caveats that come along with that, of course, but um, but I was surprised by the results. And um, from there, Maria and I have both kind of um, dedicated much of our um, professional lives to continuing to study different aspects of nonviolent resistance, both um, occasionally together and in separate um, uh, collaborations with others and, and solo projects, too. So um, I think that that's you know, much of what I'm doing now is, is related to that initial kind of discovery um, that Maria and I um, came across in, in 20, uh, 2008, really, and then we wrote the book that came out in 2011. Yeah, and one of the things that, that I, I think people probably heard in that is that you, 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 you liked the notion of nonviolent resistance, but you assumed that uh, it, it was not as, uh, as successful. Um, uh, and I gave a few statistics in the intro, how many, you know, how many, uh, conflicts you looked at and how many variables and so on. But can you take us through in a little more depth, how you go about rigorously seeking a credible, meaningful, and, and maybe most important, useful conclusion when you undertake that comparison between nonviolent and violent. And, and, um, and I think one of the things that I was surprised by and you were surprised by was that no one had done it prior to you and Maria's setting out to do it. Right. Yes. Um, so, you know, to the question of how do you even design a study that can credibly deal with this question, um, of course, there's lots of different kind of methodological inclinations that people have, but in, in my case, um, with my own toolkit at the time, what I was trying to do is come up with um, a design that would capture a really long-term study, so one that covered a significant period of world history um, that also um, covered basically every country in the world, so every potential candidate uh, for a place where people could wage some kind of struggle, armed or unarmed. Um, and then basically it came to um, looking at comparable uh, campaigns of action. So um, you have to make sure that you're not comparing apples to oranges. So in our case, we use kind of a strict inclusion criteria. First, the campaign had to be seeking maximalist goals. That is the, as you mentioned, overthrow of uh, an incumbent national leader or territorial liberation, which could be either a secession campaign, some kind of self-determination campaign, um, or the expulsion of a foreign military occupation um, or colonial power. Uh, and then basically we excluded campaigns where people were asking for less than that. So, for example, if they were asking for the expansion of certain rights, if they were asking for um, policy reforms or even institutional reforms, we were not going to include those um, because we didn't want to include campaigns where, you know, the goals might be easier, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, to achieve because they were demanding less. Um, and then we had to come up with a criterion for success. And again, we followed standard practice in political science, which is to essentially try to compare on discrete outcomes that you can observe across many cases. 
that are comparable. Um, so what we um, chose to do was look at the removal of the incumbent national leader through irregular means. Um, we looked uh, at territorial independence, that is full independence, both de facto and de jure. Um, and uh, we counted, like, a dictator being voted out through um, elections as not a success. <laughs> we uh, counted uh, autonomy, even significant autonomy, as not a success. Um, so you had to sort of achieve the, the, full, um, the, the full basket of uh, that maximalist objective. You had to, uh, the campaigns had to do so within a year of their peak mobilization, and they had to have had a discernible impact on that outcome such that we couldn't imagine it happening without the campaign. So, for example, if there was some kind of international intervention that forced the outcome, we wouldn't necessarily say that that campaign was the only reason it happened. Um, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that if the dictator died in office of a heart attack that the campaign won, um, even if they um, had an indirect impact on that outcome. Um, so... Basically, um, we then circulated our data uh, to a panel of uh, field experts uh, to make sure that we had included all of the campaigns that, um, that had been reported from 1900 through 2006 around the world, both um, through history books, through different existing databases of different protest events. Um, and we used as our unit of analysis campaigns um, rather than than events of protest, and the reason is because campaigns are a bit easier to observe. That is to say, um, it's easier for us to make a pretty credible case that we picked up um, all reported incidents where people um, had at least a thousand members who were actively confronting the opponent over a um, period of time, um, as opposed to like a one-off event that could go unreported and, and unnoticed. So, you know, basically our inclusion criteria are pretty strict. Um, and once we compare armed and unarmed and mixed campaigns along those criterion, then we can really um, make a much more credible argument that we are looking at one-to-one -one comparisons. Very good. Let me ask a couple of questions about that. One, when um, the campaign, whether violent nor violent, uh, or nonviolent or mixed, as you say, somewhere there was a nonviolent component, but there was violence. Um, when that is not sort of the sole determinant, or you can't say that was the, you know, that was what did the trick because there was, as you suggested, foreign intervention or something like that, do those go as, as failures or do they uh, fall out of the count? Yeah, so they stay in the count, but we, we would mark them down as partial successes. So that means the campaign might have had an impact on the mm -hmm. outcome, but wasn't the the main driver necessarily, or it was really ambiguous and hard to untangle. So, for example, the Indian independence movement, um, Gandhi's movement, and the Quit India campaign, we put as like a partial success. Now, functionally, what this means in the actual analysis that we've done um, in the book and um, and in the in the data set is that those campaigns that didn't succeed outright are counted as failures. And this, again, is for a really conservative reason, um, which is that we, we don't want skeptics to say that we overcounted successes or biased the results in favor of nonviolent campaigns, which also have a higher success, a higher partial success rate, mm. and, and that, in the sense that they get more 
concessions short of full success than armed campaigns. So we didn't, we, we wanted to exclude those. So the only campaigns that we coded as successes are those that met those strictest criteria. Okay. So that's, that's one thing. And the other is, uh, this just occurs to me, um, that what about those less than maximal conflicts? In other words, when I think of the U.S., um, you know, uh, we're in need of some resistance. We're in need of some change, but it's not going to fall into, you know, your overthrow sort of model. Um, has anyone done um, research on that or is that just too loose? You, you get where I'm going. In other words, does yeah. do we assume that the same uh, preference for uh, nonviolence uh, shows up in those, and, and so that that would be sort of uh, you know guidance or uh, you know for for us going forward. Yeah, so um, we definitely we we couldn't with our resources collect those data because, as you can imagine, oh, if yeah. you just were looking around the world at any um, yeah. campaign where there are at least a thousand people engaged in <laughs> mobilization, it's it's a, a, a major undertaking, and I'm I'm actually doing that. Oh. Um, with a research team right now that kind of covers the whole world from 1955 until 2017. Um, so we're collecting data on, on all kinds of different um, movements that are, you know, basically it, the only criterion is that there are at least a thousand people engaged for longer than a week in some kind of collective action. So that really opens up the, um, the opportunity to more, do some more thorough analysis about um, what we can extrapolate. Um, but I will say that once you you look at the campaigns that way, it's very clear that there are far far more nonviolent campaigns that happen around the world than violent ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it is the the dominant mode of conflict prosecution, uh, so to speak, when when people have um, an issue that they're trying to resolve and and their institutions are not able to um, provide solutions or redress for those grievances. Um, and we'll know, you know, a lot more about um, uh, more generalized findings, I hope, in the next few years. That's exciting. So that this, this you know, for anyone who's, this is civil rights uh, issues, obviously yep. a lot of the stuff that's happening around climate change and will continue to happen around climate change, those sorts of things, where you're not overthrowing the government, you just want them to do, do the work. <laughs> um, yeah, and Jeremy Pressman and I are, are collecting events data in the United States on a daily basis, and that's through our crowd counting consortium, mm-hmm. um, where we look at every single political crowd that has assembled in the U.S. Um, uh, since the Women's March. Uh, so we have pretty uh, good data just about like patterns of protests in the United States um, in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, one thing uh, I'd love you to do is... Um Cite some examples and uh, just from your work and so on. Uh, and, and so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention three of them, then I'll ask you to talk about the role of nonviolent uh, uh, resistance in those. Uh, the, in 1986, in the Philippines, uh, the, you know, the end of the Marcos regime. In mm-hmm. 2003, the ouster of Edward Shevardnadze in, in Georgia. And then the one that I mentioned in the intro earlier this year, the presidents of both the Sudan and Algeria announcing they would step aside. Uh, just give us a little feel for what the resistance was and how it worked. 
so in the Philippines, there was about a three-year-long uh, campaign that was really a pro-democracy movement, um, uh, the sort of iconic people power movement of the Philippines. And um, Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos, who's the president of the Philippines at the time, was backed by the United States. And um, there were significant conflicts that had been ongoing in the Philippines over the, the previous several decades. Um, and, you know, in the end, uh, there was kind of a political crisis that erupted. Um, there was a kind of bloodless coup, um, and the protesters um, had both um, protested on behalf of the military stepping in and then protested to protect the military once they had tried to step in to remove him. Um, a couple of the things that are notable about um, the people power movement um, is the role of the of women and, and religious communities. Um, in particular, the Catholic Church was pretty important um, in mobilizing a kind of moral argument, both for um, greater freedoms and um, for the protection of civilians and unarmed protesters uh, at the time. And so, um, in the end, not only did the, the People Power Movement assemble huge mass, it is just, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of people at, at key um, moments of the mobilization, um, but they were able to do it in a way that prevented some um, mass atrocities from actually taking place. Um, there's one anecdote where uh, there was an order for um, apparently the, the Air Force or some kind of special forces to fly above demonstrators and um, attack them from the skies. And um, some of the nuns that were associated with the Catholic Church in Manila um, arranged themselves into a cross um, in the streets so that when the um, planes or helicopters were flying overhead, um, they looked down and they saw the <laughs> crucifix. So it apparently prevented some of them from um, from engaging in the violence. And in the end, I think it's uh, one of those iconic cases because it shows how civil resistance works. It, it doesn't necessarily work because it um, melts the heart of the dictator, right. per se, um, but it works because... Uh, or when it works, it works because there were huge numbers of people that figured out a way to um, elicit shifts in the loyalties of the pillars that support the dictator. In this case, security forces and even kind of um, erstwhile loyal uh, security forces, uh, and that those defections are key in really dislocating the opponent from its pillars of support. Um, so, of course, this, this all happened in the context of a contested election outcome and a political assassination, um, which points to another thing that's really interesting about many different uh, civil resistance campaigns um, and kind of semi-authoritarian regimes, they, they often will, um, will happen in the context of elections that um, raise questions about the fairness of the process. Um, and the dignity of, of people who are casting their votes in good faith only to have them stolen or manipulated. Um, and so there's something about elections that um, seem to um, galvanize and, and catalyze movements, even in pretty repressive places, um, that uh, makes those kind of key moments of, of collective action. 
so um, in the Georgian case, uh, this was another case where there was really kind of a mass, a very large-scale uprising um, against Shevardnadze um, that was ultimately successful. Um, I don't know too much about that case. I can speak more okay. to, to sort of more recent cases. That's, and, that's and, fine. And, let let, let me actually, the, the, you've, yeah. you fleshed out the Philippine case, you know, quite well. So let, let me go to okay. the, the next question, which you were beginning to get into there, which is based on the cases you've studied, what are the key elements that are necessary mm-hmm. for a successful nonviolent campaign? And my other question, as you begin to answer that, is, the um, the data study uh, where you set you know here's here's what defines a uh, an uprising here's what defines success and so on it seems to me once you get into the explanations you're not in quite as definite and clear a territory how do you come up with those explanations and then what are they yeah so basically. Um I guess I can I can sort of summarize what I see as the four things that mm-hmm. um, seem to be associated with successful nonviolent campaigns, and these are uh, factors that we did collect and code for each of the different uh, campaigns in the initial data set. So the first is um, is the numbers. Uh, so the larger the campaign and the more diverse the campaign participants. In peak moments, the more likely the campaign is to succeed, um, and that's because large-scale participation opens up all kinds of political opportunities for the movement that smaller campaigns don't have. Um, for one thing, they make movements that are nonviolent much more likely to elicit defections from security forces. Um, so we did we can observe when that happens, and those are coded in the data set um, when they do. And it's definitely the case that when security forces in particular uh, start to disobey the regime, um, it's much more likely that the campaigns succeed. The uh, third factor is uh, large-scale campaigns in particular are much better at innovating new tactics. Um, So they are um, much better, for example, at being able to shift to Um, methods of dispersion, meaning like strikes and stay-at-home demonstrations Mm -hmm. that are actually very disruptive, as opposed to just engaging in protests and demonstrations. Um, And then the fourth factor is that that nonviolent campaigns that maintain um, discipline, that is, they kind of are able to stick to their plan and remain resilient to repression over time, are much more likely to succeed than campaigns that kind of fall into disarray as soon as repression escalates. Mm-hmm. So um, the way that we can sort of glean those factors um, is both, as I mentioned, in some of the descriptive data that um, we get from, from the Largen study. But um, Maria had done her doctoral thesis on the topic of nonviolent resistance and had done some really thorough case studies um, that allowed us to pull out some of these other more qualitative factors. And then we also did some um, some new research um, for our book that we wrote together um, that covers Burma, the Philippines, Iran, and the first Palestinian Intifada. Um, and so we're able to compare basically successful and failed cases of nonviolent action and of violent action across those cases that helps us to pull out these, these key factors of success. 
Okay, so, um, so, so yeah, that's kind of a, a mixed methodology. But so I, but I can understand. As I said, it's not quite as black and white as does this qualify as a you know as a conflict and does it qualify as a success? This is a little more gray, but I get it. I'm just going to repeat them so people get it. Large, diverse, sustained participation. Number one, the more people that are involved and stay involved, um, and then the loyalty shifts. The key one is security forces, but it's also the rest of the elites that are supporting. Um, and then, uh, as you say, you d- mere repetition of demonstrations, mass demonstrations, um, is not going to be as successful as when you begin to vary it with boycotts, stay-at-home strikes, those sorts of things, and then to to finally resist the temptation to uh, uh, to respond in kind to uh, violence and repression from the authorities. Um, let me just jump off from that last one and say you've actually studied uh, what happens in these mixed situations when there is a block within the protest movement that says, you know, we've we've got to fight back. We've got to we've got to meet them with violence um, and so on. And and I'm there. I know that that temptation has to exist. And we even see that in the U.S., uh, it seems to me, where you have uh, a lot of uh, peaceful demonstrations and then you have uh, confrontations between, say, white nationalists and Antifa and those sorts of things. So what are your findings, what are your findings when there is, uh, when violence is inserted into a nonviolent campaign? Yeah, so um, again, I've only really looked at this in depth uh, myself using these maximalist campaigns. Um, and, you know, what I found with, with Kurt Schock in particular in a, in a 2015 study is that um, nonviolent campaigns that embrace or adopt violent flanks um, are less likely to succeed um, than nonviolent campaigns that don't. Um, the nonviolent campaigns that that embrace or adopt violent flanks are still more likely to succeed than outright armed campaigns, um, but they are less likely to succeed than the than the ones that avoid um, that. And I think that you know the the main uh, thing to look at there is that the the nonviolent campaigns in which there is an an armed flank um, are. They tend to be smaller in size, and um, the the size actually tends to uh, people people tend to stay away um, once mm-hmm. the campaign starts to to adopt arms or be associated with that, um, and the participants become more homogenous. So what that generally means is that um, there are fewer opportunities to create those different political leverage points that I mentioned um, in the in the prior discussion. Um, now, it is the case that sometimes nonviolent campaigns with violent flanks succeed, but um, I would argue that they typically succeed in spite of the violent flanks rather than because of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is true, for example, in the South Africa case um, in the anti-apartheid movement uh, where you know, there's a temptation to say, oh, there was an armed campaign and an unarmed campaign, and that made the unarmed campaign much more um, kind of desirable as a negotiating partner, and, you know, Mandela um, was helped by the fact that there was an armed flank waiting in the wings and, and engaging in 
kind of credible threats of, of escalating the conflict. And, um, you know, we can, reasonable people can disagree about um, whether that's the way it happened there. I think in the South Africa case, it's, it's much more um, kind of convincing to say that um, the presence of a, an armed flank in that context actually created a much higher um, intensity of repression against even unarmed dissidents and made it a much tougher environment in which um, they could organize effective nonviolent action for a number of years. Um, but they nevertheless found a way to um, engage in mass non-cooperation um, economically, and that forced an economic crisis um, and galvanized in the international community to isolate South Africa economically in a way that really... Um, really uh, created the opportunity for um, a negotiated outcome to that conflict um, that ended legal apartheid. And yes, there is still a lot of room to go uh, in mm -hmm. terms of racial discrimination and all kinds of structural violence that remain um, in that case, but there's no evidence to suggest that an armed campaign uh, would have set the country on uh, a smoother path right. um, one, than, one of the, than the, the nonviolent one. Right. One of the things I've heard you say is that when uh, uh, the uh, the authorities can uh, get the situation to become either chaotic or violent, that, that that's now you're playing on their turf. And exactly. and and uh, that works for them. One of the things that 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 you've said, which I think people will understand, is that as soon as that begins to happen, then uh, the accusation that the uh, the uprising is terrorist or communist or anarchist or whatever, you know, that they are the enemies of the people and, and the, as well as the state. Uh, becomes much a much easier case to make. And one thing you have uh, researched, or someone has researched, but I read it in your notes, is that um, uh, among Americans that have been polled, uh, I believe, that when there's violence involved, people have said, I'm much likely, much less likely to get involved. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of research on that, um, and on, you know, the, the sort of distribution of preferences, um, depending on who a person is and, and what their um, particular position in the society is. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's definitely the case that people um, who already suffer from um, uh, marginalization and uh, structural violence are much more vulnerable to um, repression and continued oppression. Um, in these contexts, so you know that it, it is it becomes much higher risk um, for there to be continued participation, um, which leads to this sort of homogenization of the participant base, right? So, um, so it's not kind of an accident that when when we see um, different armed flanks emerging, that they tend to be um, young people yeah. of a particular um, socioeconomic or ethnic racial background. Um, and who are, like, highly risk-acceptant. 
Um, but what's not as easy to um, see exactly is the political effects mm-hmm. of their high-risk action affect everybody, not just them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, one thing, oh, let me tell people, by the way, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Erica Chenoweth. She's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. She's co-host of the uh, podcast Political Violence at a Glance and co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works. And you can learn more at her website, Erica Chenoweth, C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H, ericachenowethoneword.com. This is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2019 conversation with Erica Chenoweth, professor at Harvard's Kennedy School and co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works. You can learn more at ericachenoweth.com. Um, uh, one thing is that you uh, actually come up with a number um, that says when uh, sustained participation reaches this percent of the population, you have never seen an uprising fail. Could you tell us what that number is and what that would mean, what that number translates into in American society? Sure. Uh, so in some further research I was doing on the NAVCO data um, uh, before a, a workshop of activists, I was curious uh, about the question of how many people uh, it takes, essentially, uh, to, to sort of guarantee success. And um, in the original data set, it looks like 3.5% of the population is that kind of magic number or threshold above which no campaigns had failed uh, to achieve their their goals. Um, in the United States, that's about probably 11.5 million people, we think, at this point. Um, so it's a, it, it sounds like a small number, but it's actually a pretty significant absolute number of, of um, people who would participate. Okay. Um, let me uh, shift, if I may, to some things that I've heard you talk about um, in uh, in in a, well, there was a, a particular talk that I listened to uh, in preparation, in which you suggested uh, that there were some things that some trends that were moving in the wrong direction, um, and one of them was I found that int- you found that uh, conflict in a society is likely when and let me see if I'm saying this right when inequality plus race, plus demographic shifts can lead to conflict. You understand where I'm going there. Can you, can you explain that? Because I think that is really fascinating in terms of both what it means elsewhere, but what it means in terms of what's going on right now in the U.S. Sure. Um, and I should say, you know, um, really quickly with regard to the 3.5% rule. Oh. Um, I should say really quickly that um, that covers that data from 1900 to 2006 and those maximalist campaigns, but we don't actually know whether it applies outside that context mm-hmm. or to non-maximalist campaigns. Right. Oh, Especially and in- and that question that I had asked you, what would that mean in the U.S.? And what that would mean is uh, 11 or 11 and a half million people would have to uh, be involved, right? In a, right. in a sustained way, and for for context or comparison, that the largest, according to your research, the largest uh, single uh, demonstration in the U.S. was the original uh, Women's March in 2017 that you counted at between uh, four and five and a half million. 
So it exactly. so if you look at five and a half, that top number, it would have to be twice that on a sustained basis to hit that three point five percent. Exactly. Yeah. So this uh, this this trouble this trouble uh, equation that I was mentioning, or this trouble brew that I was mentioning, that that had been. Uh, learned by some other folks, but I, th- I just found it so fascinating, this thing of inequality plus race plus demographic shifts. Yeah, so this is a finding from a few political scientists named Lars Eric Saderman, Christian Gleditch, and Harvard Bohoek. And they wrote an award-winning book in, I think, 2012, um, where what they found is that there's been a long-standing belief in social science that the main source of conflict in the world in terms of civil war is poverty, and that the key to lifting countries out of civil war is to, is basically economic development. And this pair of scholars, or this trio of scholars came through with this book and said, actually, we've completely missed a really important um, dynamic, which is that it isn't so much a poverty trap as it is a horizontal inequality trap. And by that, they mean economic inequalities, um, so a, a growing divide between the, the wealthiest and the poorest, um, combined with um, some kind of differentiation based on identity or ethnicity or race. So in other words, the people who are getting wealthy are of a certain race and the people who are poor are of a different race. They argue that um, in moments where um, economic inequality is increasing but demographic uh, distributions uh, are shifting, in other words, there's going to be a shift in the majority versus the minority, um, that's when you're more likely to see the onset of armed conflict in a country. And so this is a really worrying trend because um, for those who have argued that um, poverty is the primary driver of civil war. Um, they've basically excluded a huge set of countries from the worry zone, right? They've mm-hmm. said, like, look, if you're above a certain threshold of economic development, you're safe. You're just never going to have a civil war because you're among the wealthier countries and, and civil wars only happen in poor countries. These scholars are saying that's completely wrong, that basically any country could be a candidate for this if they have the... Um, the troubling um, interaction between economic inequality and racial or, or ethnic inequality, and then the sort of sudden dem- demographic shift that that tries to that's about to tip the balance in terms of uh, who holds power. Mm-hmm. So when I referred to the U.S., it seems to me that one could say that is the brew that's happening here. Um, while we haven't hit. Uh, you know, armed conflict and so on. What we've got is we've got growing inequality. We can certainly see that there are racial dimensions. And then what we also see is a democratic demographic shift where the folks who uh, have control the power, the wealth and so on, that is to say whites, are watching their uh, their numbers uh go down relative to uh, people of color, relative to uh, immigrants, etc. And that if one looks at, you know, the, uh, the Trump base, 
it seems to me it, that that brew works for uh, e- explaining some of that. Yes, you could potentially extend their argument to um, to make the claims that you just made, but I'll I'll tell you a couple of reasons why I wouldn't go so far. Oh, great! Um, the first is that um, there's nothing. That, that this is basically a totally structural argument. This is sort of suggesting it doesn't matter what we do. There are certain structural forces at work, and there are certain types of processes that are inevitable and, and escalatory, and we're just stuck with that. And I actually don't think that's true. I think that the decisions that people make and the actions they take um, and their behaviors vis-a-vis one another are much more important in determining whether a country actually um, devolves into large-scale civil conflict or not. And so that has to be part of the conversation, and there's much that we can do um, both to, to, um, to, to build capacity for nonviolent conflict resolution and to uh, resist uh, different um, kind of escalatory d- dynamics that would take us down a different path. Um, the second uh, reason that I wouldn't go so far is because the United States um, it still um, still has some functioning democratic institutions, <laughs> and um, these are uh, these are processes that require a literal total breakdown of those. And so, this also suggests we have to continue to defend and, in fact, expand the functioning of our democratic institutions, um, and that those are options for us to um, to continue to sort of stopgap. Um, whatever tendencies might arise to um, uh, to try to undermine them. Um, that said, I think that the country is moving in the wrong direction. I think for very many people in this country, they always they already feel like there's a violent conflict being waged against them, and uh, that we have to do everything that we can to um, alleviate. Uh, those conditions and to um, restore justice where um, it needs to be restored. Okay, now I you originally said you would have to jump off right now. Can yeah, I can, can I, I get do. can I get we can do one last bit? Okay, so and and I'll edit out that piece when we edit. Um, so taking off from where you said, and by the way, I wasn't saying that are we ripe for violent conflict. I was saying that that model and that brew seems to explain the. Uh, the the intensity of nonviolent conflict that we're in in America. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I was see. sort of saying, and and that, you know that that things that that have happened over the last few years, which people say, well, that would never happen here, are happening, and I felt that that uh, that explanation might be explaining that. You finally uh, say that you are optimistic. Uh, and so what I'm going to give you now is time uh, in, in your last question to talk about your optimism. And I'd love you to, to, to mention uh, Women's March, Extinction Rebellion, anything else that fits your model of why you're optimistic. Yeah, so here's why I'm optimistic. I think that um, from what I can see in the data, we do live in a very tumultuous time. We live in a time of great uncertainty. We don't know where the world is headed. But even with all that, um, people are uh, turning to nonviolent action at a much higher rate uh, than ever before in recorded human history. And so um, we have to um, appreciate the fact that um, more and more people view nonviolent action as the way uh, to both uh, pursue their um, demands and and to resolve conflicts. Um, So 
even though it can feel troubling and unsettling, I see it as a largely good thing um, that people's first impulse is not to actually try to wage armed <laughs> struggle against their, their neighbors, and that instead um, we're in a time when, when there's been a great expansion and the understanding of how to harness people power for change. Um, so I think that should be noticed and, and celebrated. Yeah, and I would say finally, the the thing that I see as sort of out there in the future, and I know that uh, 350 is planning, I believe, uh, strikes in in the fall to to you know uh, echoing what's happened in some other countries, is that I think the people who sort of will show up at a march now have to be willing to show up at a march and get arrested, and to show up at a, another march after they've been arrested, and that sort of thing that I think the uncomfortable, that range between nonviolent, I'll show up at a demonstration, and violent, that I think there's going to have to be more of us in the middle. (laughs) Right, exactly. So again, the book is Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. The website is ericachenoweth.com. That's Erica, E-R-I-C-A, Chenoweth, C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H.com, ericachenoweth.com. For this conversation and many other interviews, articles, transcripts of interviews, and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. So that's terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, one word, or a world that just might work.com. That's all one word, a world that just might work. And they're the same website. Now, if you want to receive my weekly email announcement of guests and issues, plus I usually put in eight to 10 articles that flesh out uh, the conversation we're having, plus a few things that I think are relevant, timely, uh, and maybe even attention-getting in terms of uh, what's wrong and solutions that are happening, uh, you can uh, sign up at my site or you can email me at temcnally at mac.com, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at mac, M-A-C dot com. You can also subscribe and listen to the free forum podcast uh, at Apple Podcasts and many other uh, podcast sites. Some of you may still look at Apple Podcasts as iTunes. That works as well. And you can find years of podcasts at my site. Listen anytime, anywhere. Archives include Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle. You can follow me on Twitter at at McNally Terrence, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y-T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E. Thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Erica Chenoweth, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much.